Welcome to the show, everyone. This is a stakeholder-centered coaching production where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Today's episode is another installment of Conversations with Coaches, where our top coaches share the behind-the-scenes unfolding of their career. Now, the goal of this series is to give you an intimate peek behind the curtain so that you can see the messy ingredients that go into building a successful coaching career, as well as some of the rewards that come at the end of the tunnel for those who are willing to put in the effort. I'm your host, Brandon Murgard, and if you'd like to ask a question or recommend a guest, then I invite you. Send me an email, podcast at mgscc.net. That's podcast at mgscc.net. Good. My guest today is none other than the Mr. Jathan Janov. Now, Jathan is a master coach and practice leader with Marshall Goldsmith Stakeholder Center Coaching. He applies the Stakeholder Center Coaching methodology with senior executives throughout the United States and helps them overcome their organizational challenges that they're facing. Now, some of you may not know this, but Jathan is the former State Bar Employment Attorney of the Year. And he's also the author of his book, Hard Won Wisdom, True Stories from the Management Trenches. Jathan is an adjunct professor at the University of California, San Diego Master Series. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jathan Janov. Great to have you on the show, Jathan. Great to be here. Now, um, aside from being connected through Marshall and uh, you know, basically being uh, my neighbor here in the Pacific Northwest, I have been an avid consumer of your publications for quite some time, um, and I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, your posts on topics such as uh, verbal Aikido, which I've incorporated not only into my work life, but also into my parenting style. So suffice it to say, Jathan, you've had a profound impact on me already. Um, and so what I'd like to do today is extend the benefit that I've got from knowing you with our listeners. Thank you. Sounds great. Good. Well, where I'd like to pick up today um, is is with your coaching career. So we all know Jathan Janov, the employment law attorney. We know Jathan Janov, the author. But today I want to invite you to tell the story of Jathan Janov, master coach and practice leader. So if you'd allow me, um, I'd like to go all the way back to the beginning to start our story. Is that okay? Absolutely. Well, so uh, the story actually goes back to high school. Uh, uh, my father was a university professor in education development and one of the early practitioners of, of what's now known as organization development. Before it was really known as a true field of study. It was in its sort of early stages. And my dad was one of those progenitors. And so when I was in high school, he used to bring me along to events, uh, workshops on, you know, how to build trust, collaboration, these sorts of things. Uh, and so then I went to law school and, of course, all that went out the window, right? The legal profession isn't based on trust and collaboration with no business in it. <laughs> so, but I ended up in my practice doing employment law workplace relationships. For, so for 25 years, I made a living on toxic workplace relationships. Mm. You know, relationships that, you know, began win-win and ended up lose-lose and often the worst way for them. 
And so over time, though, there was like a gravitational pull from what I learned from my father in high school and what he was doing with what I was observing in the workplace. And it started to draw me away from just litigating the, you know, the ashes of a destroyed relationship to looking at what would change this, what would have prevented it, not just in the sense that there wouldn't have been a lawsuit, that where the relationship might have been a long-term win-win as opposed to what happened. And so really, that's sort of the earlier thing. I wasn't really aware of it. It wasn't a conscious career choice, but it was just something that just started to pull me in the direction of coaching Again, though, with a focus on the workplace, okay, that the workplace has been my entire 40-year career, mm. okay, and that's not going to change. But what changed was where I saw myself with regard to the workplace. So you started off um, back in high school with this kind of exposure uh, to OD, to L&D, um, to people processes. And then you went into law. What was the what was the impetus to to make such a pivot into law? Well, you know, one is I've always been, you know, enjoyed and people think good at debate. And maybe also I have kind of an internal jerk inside me that lends itself to being a lawyer. I don't know. But, you know, everybody was always, oh, God, he's going to be a lawyer. He's going to be a lawyer. He's going to be a lawyer. And that's how I became a lawyer. Okay. And so you, well, it sounds like your, your kind of early, um, early feet into this industry actually started with uh, addressing, as you said, the problems that came as a result of employer-employee relationship. Um, at what point, or maybe I should ask, was there a specific point where you said, hey, we can actually prevent this rather than reacting to it? Yes, and, and that actually occurred before I became trained as a coach. I started to, well, I started out this business in the business as a plaintiff's attorney. I represented employees and unions. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I sued organization like Marshall Goldsmith's clients. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully Marshall's not listening in. <laughs> uh, but then depending on your point of view, uh, either I saw the light or was, you know, drawn to the dark side. Uh, the rest of my career was on the management side. And it was in the management side where I started to kind of morph from pure legal advice to organization consulting advice and morphing from legal analysis to legal analysis with coaching elements to it, mm -hmm. human relation elements to it. So that's really, you know, way before I decided to just say I'm making this change. I think that's where the seeds were being planted. Mm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I've heard you talk about pushing. I've heard you talk about polling. One of the curiosities I have from your career is becoming a coach. Was it more of a push away from law or was it more of a pull into you know, performance augmentation, for example? I would say it started as a pull because, you know, I frankly loved being an employment lawyer for the longest time until, well, the pull was where I could really maybe make a difference at the relationship level. That's the pull. 
Later, a push was added. And without boring your audience, uh, there's a doctrine called spoliation. If there's any lawyers on this, you'll know what the heck I'm talking about. Changed the whole landscape of litigation. Had to do with the internet and technology and email. And so what had happened in the world of employment litigation was it was all about e-discovery. And the plaintiff strategy was to say, you know, you didn't preserve, you didn't save, and therefore you're going to be sanctioned, et cetera, et cetera, which meant that the amount of work that it took to get a case to trial just exploded and the number of boring issues. Uh, well, what, you know, well, we want you to transfer everything in your clients, you know, cloud into our cloud. And, you know, it's all this stuff. So that became a push, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. That whole e-discovery thing was like, you know what, I'm, I'm done. So it started with a pull and it ended with a push. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. So spoliation, you said, is about um, pr the preservation. Oh, sorry. I, I guess, yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. It, it's an instruction. It's, it's a legal doctrine. Mm hmm that says, if you fail, if you destroy evidence or you fail to preserve evidence, you're in big trouble. Mm. And then it's a question of what your penalty is, which can range from the client and the lawyer being personally fined to the whole case being decided against you without even going to trial. So it's high stakes. It's called spoliation, as in spoil, okay? And, it, and then spoliation always existed as an issue. But, you know, back in the days where it was all paper, it was fairly, you know, concrete. But now you get into E stuff and it's everywhere and anywhere. And it just it just changed the whole landscape of litigation. And and uh, and I just really didn't want part of it anymore. Wow. So when you made the conscious decision, okay, this is this is the line moving forward, I'm going to be pursuing a coaching career. Did that decision take place before this spoliation was introduced to the legal practice or did that happen at a different time? I think they sort of run, you know, initially it was I was becoming more and more interested in the prevention side. Mm -hmm. And then as as the litigation landscape changed. It just created a greater sense of urgency, a sense that I don't want to spend the rest of my career mired in endless e-discovery disputes. Mm. Mm -hmm. And and I got I want to find a different path. So let me try this other path out. So from the the time you had that uh, let's call that that inspiration to go towards coaching. Um, how long did it take you to go from that inspiration to actually action? You know, we hear some coaches say, took me years to make the final decision. And others, you know, say that I made this instantaneously almost. What was it for you? Well, it certainly wasn't instantaneous. It was a matter of years. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I don't know how many, but yeah, it wasn't instantaneous. I can assure you that. <laughs> Um, well, you know, you're very involved and have uh, achieved an extremely high level of success here, especially within our network. Um, you know, what, what was your first exposure to Marshall Goldsmith and how did that shape your perspective of what you were trying to create with this, uh, with this sort of preventative um, measures with employers and employees? Well, my first exposure actually was to Frank Wagner. Mm. Okay. Who, who really is, I think, kind of the architect, uh, uh maybe the principal architect on the whole system 
that we have. I mean, I think he took Marshall's insights and I think Frank really was really took ownership to try to codify it and develop it into a, a structure. Uh, so my first really exposure was with, with Frank and a great benefit. And Frank's been a great mentor to me. Um, and, and frankly, he, he kind of rescued me in a certain way because I had, when I decided to make this change, I got trained in a coaching methodology that is pretty conventional. Mm-hmm. It's pretty ICF, and I'm not disrespecting ICF, but it's pretty conventional. And I was finding it just didn't work for me. Okay. And, and I thought, you know what? I don't think I can be a coach under this kind of system. It just doesn't fit, doesn't fit my background. And so when I met Frank and got to know a little bit more about this method, stakeholders and coaching, and then got trained and certified, and then Frank helped me with some early engagements, I had kind of an aha moment that this methodology fits me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that actually kind of resuscitated my uh, coaching career. And what was your response when you when you felt that? I mean, I hear coaches, uh, well, I'll share personally. I mean, when I first learned the methodology, my first thought was to go way overboard with it. And boy, I got to do this at home. I got to do this with my family. I need to do this with my friends and community. Mm-hmm. You know, what was your response when you first read um, when you first read about what the the process is and how it works? Well, when I first read about it, I thought this sounds great, but you know, proofs in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I struggled at first. Um, I did a group. I was certified in both the individual and the group coaching, and it was a struggle. And I tell newly certified coaches, don't assume you got it down. I mean, unless you're, you know, twelve times as talented as, and smarter than I am. There's just no way you've got this down. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's technically speaking simple. It ain't easy. Simple and easy are not synonyms. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's one of the reasons also the pro bono program that I helped launch is to get people experienced and then have more senior people like Frank or now myself help you through that. Cause, uh, even after those, you know, four days of programming and even with Frank's additional and additional reading, uh, you know, I was still an apprentice. Mm-hmm. I was still an apprentice. And, and so it was really at some point that it just starts to click mm-hmm. and you start to just now you get it. Yeah, I've heard coaches describe this as, uh, I mean, like riding a bike that that you will well, when you go through your stages of, of consciousness and competence, like when you yeah. get on, you're going to be wobbly, but at a certain point, you just, you just stop wobbling and you maintain momentum and you can stop and start fairly, um, fairly easily. Yeah. How long did it take you to get to that point of uh, even just conscious competence where you know what you're doing, you're thinking about it a lot, but by and large, it's running smoothly. How many engagements would you say that took you? I don't know about number of engagements, mm-hmm. you know, because one benefit I had was like I had access to Frank. Mm-hmm. So he could debrief me. He could tell me where I screwed up and how I screwed up. 
and so, uh, you know, but I'd say it was at least a year, at least a year. And at least, you know, a half dozen engagements. Now, I can tell you, because I mentor people now, there are people that get this a lot faster than I did. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was just my stubbornness as an attorney or whatever. But I've had people, uh, you know, do a lot better than I did a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. People that I'm mentoring or have mentored. Uh, but for me, for whatever reason, I'd say it was, you know, at least three or four engagements in, in about a year. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to win a prize for, you know, alacrity. Okay. Ooh, good news, Jathan. As you know, we don't give out prizes for, you know, who gets it fastest, but boy, if we did, I don't think I'd be, I don't think I'd be qualified for that either. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're right. It takes time. Uh, Marshall always describes this as simple, but not easy. And I think that you've, you've nailed that with the two not being synonyms. Um, but was there anything that you did, you know, other than actually practicing that had a significant impact on your ability to reach that level of conscious competence? Hmm. Boy, it's a great question. Uh, well, one lesson, and I don't know if I learned it through this system or otherwise is the less my ego was engaged, the more effective I was. And I think that somehow played into this. And and once I could disengage my ego, and I slip now and then. I mean, I you know, that ego's always there. But once I could kind of disengage or suspend the ego, my effectiveness as a coach just jumped. It it sounds like there's a very serious story behind this lesson. Can you tell me more about that? Well, there's probably more than one, but I'll just, for the sake of our audience's, yeah. uh, you know, digestion, I'll, I'll leave it to one. So I was uh, coaching a CEO and over a period of time, and and we had become friends. We were friends too. It wasn't just a pure client relationship. Um, and uh, so, so when I was in town, you know, I would, you know, be invited over family for dinner and you know it was a very nice thing and and uh well anyway uh the topic came up where i had perceived because i'd worked with him before he was ceo that now as ceo where essentially he doesn't have a boss i mean he was also on the chairman of the board you know so he did he no longer had a but before when i worked with him he was senior but he wasn't the top person he was now the top cop person, okay, accountable to really to himself. And I said, some of those old things, those old bad habits that we worked on have crept back in. And he disagreed with me. And I held my guns. And, but the, the, and he started to get a little worked up and I started to get a little worked up. And then judgment went out the window because I was, we were having this conversation where his wife and an adult child were present and they joined in. Uh, and guess whose side they took? Mm. And that didn't, I was like, talk about cringing. In fact, I just shut up. 
And I was like, I wish I could put this genie back in the bottle because they took it over mm-hmm. and they were, listen to him, listen to your coach, listen. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God, what have I done? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, uh, he fired me with three F bombs and I was a little afraid he was going to also throw in maybe a right hook or a, you know, a shovel punch to the kidney or something. He didn't thank goodness. Uh, and years later we, we did reconcile and he did acknowledge that I was right mm. and that it had a profound impact on him. But he also said, you really hurt me. And that pains me to this day. Mm. Mm. And I had no business doing what I did when I did, even though I was right, mm-hmm. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. So if- so that's an example, but I don't want to, you know, go too far. Cause then I'm going to have to schedule a therapy session right after this <laughs> session. Good. Well, luckily I'm not a licensed therapist, but I, I know that we have uh, a couple other master coaches I'm interviewing upcoming who are. So we do have uh, people we can refer you to. Resources. Good. We do. We have resources and, and luckily you're already connected with quite a few of them. Um, but if, if you could go back to that, that uh, the moment just before the family started chiming in, what would you do different? Well, one, I wouldn't do it in his home at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I wouldn't do it in a setting that's supposed to be social. It wasn't a working, it wasn't a working event. It was a social event. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I would have been, especially a message that, you know, there's going to be resistance and it's going to cause some pain to be received. You want to really think about what is an optimal setting for a very challenging conversation. And that was absolutely not it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I've had some very heavy conversations, heavier than that one, with clients I'm coaching. But ever since then, though, I think about timing and environment, Mm -hmm. not simply the message. Timing, environment. Yeah, I think a lot of coaches struggle struggle with turning off the coaching feature in their 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 operating system that everywhere they are, they're on as a coach. Did you struggle with that as well as an attorney? No, it's not. It's not because with law, it's, there's a, it's a very defined system. Mm. Whereas coaching is much more amorphous. Anybody can be a coach. Not anybody can be a lawyer. Anybody can provide coaching analysis, but only specifically trained people can provide legal analysis. Now, that doesn't mean that untrained people don't do it, mm-hmm. but, you know, you see it. It's like, okay, fine, that's your analysis. So, no, I think it's easier to turn it on and off as a lawyer sometimes than it is as a coach mm. because there's a real clear line with law that really isn't with coaching. Jathan, it's so fascinating to me how your, uh, your career has spanned such a broad range of activities, and yet – as your profile so readily confirms, you have achieved marked success in each domain. Now, because we have a personal relationship, you know, as you're discussing these, these, um, let's call them trials that you're going through, uh, I know that it wasn't always this easy on paper. So perhaps now we can turn our attention a little bit to the emotional journey of that transition, um, as well as some of the missteps that I think invariably afflict all of us 
when we get started. So one area that coaches frequently report friction to me is in transitioning from their current career into their coaching career. Um, this is especially true for people in, in very high level functions like yourself, um, as it is for senior leaders who take up coaching as an end of career uh, or a retirement strategy. And I think the most commonly reported fear relates to the changes in predictability of income and how that news is received by the family and the support network. You know, there's, there's, there's too many stories uh, about this. Now, full disclosure, I've never been an attorney, but I am willing to bet that there is quite a discrepancy between the median earning capacity of a licensed attorney and a junior leadership coach just starting out. So can you tell us a little bit about how that conversation, uh, the transition conversations unfolded with your family and how they received the news? Yes, and well, and I'll speak to it in two ways. One is my personal one, and the other is this is something that I've you know helped people address that are have wanted to move into the coaching profession. Okay, now in my case, I've been incredibly fortunate because my wife Marjorie has always put a premium on "Are you happy at work?" and so. Um, even before moving from law, and you're right, by the way, yes. I mean, if profession to profession, now there's coaches that are highly paid. I'm one of them. But overall, profession to profession, it's definitely favors law from an income standpoint. Uh, but like I said, I've been very blessed to have a spouse that's always said, I want you happy at work. That's number one. Okay. So even before moving out of law, because I'm no longer licensed. I'm not, you know, the law's gone. Um, I left a partnership in a, you know, established, reputable firm, nice income, nice benefit package, etc. And I was, I was bored. I was, I felt like, is this it? You know, I did it. I achieved it. Now what? And so I left and started my own boutique with no guarantees, three young kids. Okay. And my wife was the primary caregiver. And so, you know, it was, it was pretty scary. Um, so, so that's my personal. So, you know, shout out to Marjorie for her support. Now I've talked to a lot of folks that aren't necessarily in that same spot for various reasons. And what I say is, and I've sometimes had those conversations with the spouse that is feeling the anxiety. And what I like to ask them is, you know, and not in a crass way, but it's what's the value of having a spouse that's happy at work versus a spouse that's unhappy at work? What's that worth? As a way to kind of put it in perspective and maybe willing to take some of a risk. Because my experience is when spouses are unhappy at work, it doesn't stay at work. It comes home. And it's not a blessing to the other spouse. In fact, there was a study done, I think it was the University of Iowa, that studied stress levels. And when somebody was stressed at work and they came home and they shared it, their stress level remained the same high level. The only difference was that their spouse's stress level went way up to match theirs. You know, thank you, honey, for sharing. So one of the things I try to say is put into the mix 
the intangible but very important value of being married to somebody or, or a significant other that's happy at work versus unhappy. So that's kind of the first thing. Mm-hmm. Then the second thing is I try to say is, is, you know, get with somebody that knows finances. I mean, in my case, I went to my financial planner and I said, how long can I go without making a dime? And he analyzed my finances. And in my case, he said two years. So I said, well, you know, if I can't make a dime in two years, I'm going back to law. And then I'll just shrug my shoulders, say it wasn't meant to be. So, so, so there's, the, there's the emotional component, okay? The impact on a family of a spouse who enjoys what he or she is doing versus the other. And then there's, I say, just, just get a clear economic picture. Uh, because the other thing that I tell some people is, you know, there may be some low hanging fruit, but it's really not the kind of fruit that you want to eat. Hmm. Okay. And so be able to at least evaluate it. And even if you're going to get paid X, is it pulling you in the wrong direction? So, so I have these conversations with people, uh, um, you know, as part of my mentoring work. Mm-hmm. It seems like um, quite the rare, the rare case to have a spouse who's so abundantly supportive despite the despite the odds. And coaches that um, I have interacted with, you know, a very small percentage of them are in that position. Um, so I'd like to ask, since since you've got the floor, uh, because she was so supportive, did that did that uh, solidify your decision in your mind? Did that make it easier, or did the opposite happen, where? You know, if she's so trusting of me, then boy, I really better do do twice as much as I was doing before. Or did that make you second guess the fact that she was so supportive? Mm. You know, I I don't. I mean, I still felt pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. I still felt you know, but I don't know that it impacted it. Put it this way, um, you know, if she'd taken a different approach, it probably wouldn't have happened. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if I didn't have her support. You know, it was scary enough, independent of her support, and scary enough, giving up a sure thing for an unknown, okay? And knowing at a minimum, you're going to take it a short term at best. Best case scenario, you're, you're still going to take at least a short term hit, and it could be a long term hit, okay? So that is enough right there to be a you know, boatload of anxiety. So I I don't think I could have pulled it off without her saying, if you think this is going to make you happy and if you have a business plan where you think you can be responsible and we might have to, you know, suffer a bit in the transition, let's, let's give it a shot. Mm. So uh, when you, when she communicates the support and says, you know, you do need to have a business plan and, you know, do this, do this well. Um, what did you, what were you able to do to, uh, quash their fears? I mean, there's quite a bit of, of uncertainty. What did you do to sort of reinforce, or maybe the, what did you do with your business plan to have her look at this and say, yeah, this is a pretty viable or seemingly viable uh, direction? Well, and again, maybe I've just been very lucky that way because there never has been a, I mean, she's never expressed a fear that I had to quash. In -hmm. fact, we have this like funny sort of thing that's followed us even back in the days when I had my own law firm and, you know, clients come, clients go, right? Some years are better than others. So there was always that independent piece. 
once I had my own firm, you know, I was no longer on a flat salary. It was, you know, feast or famine kind of thing. And so, so she has heard me after like some contracts end and, you know, and I look around and I go, oh my gosh, the cupboard is nearly bare. What am I going to do now? And she just as always just, she shakes her head and go, you know, gosh, I've heard this so many times. Okay, here we go again. Yeah, I know, honey, it's it. You, you, you've lost, it's over. Give it up, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you know, because she always says, it, it always changes. And so that's been kind of with her, it's more the, so I get no sympathy when I go, oh, damn, that's three contracts that just ended. What am I going to do to fill that in? And so I'm, I'm, so I'm more the, you know, the hyper, hyper, you know, the crazy one about, oh no, what am I going to do? Uh, and I get no sympathy. I get no sympathy. She's like, okay, all right, fine. All right. I've heard this so many times, you know, here we go again. Uh, yeah, I know it's, you know, you're never going to recover. This is it. It's the final blow, Jathan. Fine. Okay. Okay. And I was like, all right, why don't I, so I'm like, I don't even want to bother anymore. I got to find somebody else. I can you know, talk to the wall and say, Hey, I'm really nervous. I just lost three great contracts. They just ended. What am I going to do? Oh, that's so, so I, funny. You know, yeah. Yeah. So support is kind of the antithesis then of, of sympathy. She's so supportive that you're not getting the sympathy. You're getting the, Hey, right. come on, Jathan, pull yeah. up your bootstraps. Get going. But, uh, you know, but bottom line, I'll take that over the other. Oh yeah, of course. Any, any day. <laughs> um, so then, you know, at this point in the story, you, you have your family's buy-in and it mm -hmm. seems like the only thing to do was, you know, to, to get started, but there's still that nagging problem that kind of itches at the roof of, of our mouth um, when we get started, which is, uh, which is self-doubt. Um, and a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago, I, I interviewed Master Coach Bill Zeeb, who, whom I, I believe you are also well-connected with. Mm -hmm. um, and we broached the topic of imposter syndrome, because I think this is really relevant for coaches, especially ones getting started, and especially those who have reached uh, a significant level of success like yourself. Um, was this something that you faced uh, faced then, and is this something that you face now? I'd say yes and yes. Mm. What, what does it look like for you? How does uh, imposter syndrome or self-doubt well, well, manifest? And I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or just I, I need to get, you know, realistic. Uh, mm. But and, and I think we've talked a little bit about this, Brandon, but I'm working with you know, Frank and uh, Frank Wagner and others about really taking a, an organization development approach to stakeholder center coaching, where it's no longer simply one on one, one leader, one coach, one leader, one coach but where we're talking about transforming organizations to have a coaching culture. And I've been very much immersed in that space. And so, you know, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or just recognizing that, you know, there was a learning curve that I still need and still working on it. And so my, my sort of humbling thing more recently has been, the challenges of trying to scale a system of coaching mm -hmm. through an entire organization. And I think when I first plunged into this, I think I was a little naive, you know, mm. wave the magic wand, they all live happily ever after. Mm -mm. And so that's still a work in progress. And I'm working with Frank on, on that and developing it. Cause I see it as a real, also a future for our coaches mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to not, 
not to eliminate the current model, but to supplement it, augment it for organizations that are not only interested in individual leaders getting better, but their culture getting better. Oh, and absolutely. buy into the concept of coaching as not just an individual development thing, but as an organization development thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, I'm still very much in the, in the learning curve, you know, and I've been humbled. I've been mm -hmm. humbled. When I think of, of the work that you're doing, the impact that it's having, um, and the vision for, for what you're working on, uh, I see it very much like a workout program. You can go online and you can buy yourself an out-of-the-box, beginning-to-end, 12-week, get-fit workout program, mm -hmm. and chances are you're going to get very much better, assuming that you do the work. Um, but mm -hmm. there are those at the elite levels who will need some tailoring of this program or who need some some special – there will be people at the bottom rungs who need additional accountability and support, and there will be people at the upper rungs of their fitness who need um, customization and, uh, let's say, some additional prodding um, to make that work. But I think it's important. Can you tell me a little bit about the program that you're working on with, with, um, with OD? Yeah, well, it, it will encompass essentially three things. One is the core components of stakeholder-centered coaching. You know, basically the, the, the DNA, the present DNA of stakeholder-centered coaching. Second is it'll incorporate the group coaching element of stakeholder-centered coaching. So there's the one-on-one, the -on -one, which is still the driver, the main thing. There's the group. And then the third is essentially system alignment. So, so if, we're, if, if a leader of an organization wants a coaching culture, okay, he or she is going to have to buy into if they work with us. First of all, the fundamental principles of how you develop a leader. That's stakeholder center coaching, Marshall Goldsmith core. Two is how do you do the initial scaling, which is at the group level. And then three is analysis of your systems to make sure they're in alignment, that they're supporting a coaching culture versus the opposite, which is more often the case when we get involved. So that's really where we're going and what Frank and I are working on to develop and help train and support our coaches so they can be deployed in this way for organizations that are interested. Now, you know, Jathan, you've, you've piqued my curiosity, you know, you, you, especially with this third point where you have this misalignment, you know, what's your prescription for that? It's a willingness to, to change. It's really, if you go back to core principles of stakeholder center coaching, well, what are they? Okay. Humility, courage, discipline. Humility is the willingness to say, you know what? Maybe I ain't perfect. Hmm. Right. Maybe there is room to grow and maybe it ain't all their fault. Okay. So let's say you have this fancy schmancy compensation system. Okay. I had a workplace violence case over a CFO's compensation system time permitting, I can share it. Point being is this CFO was ego invested in the system. There was no humility. 
And it was instead of creating what they wanted to create, it created the opposite. So humility is, are you willing to look at how you evaluate people, how you hire people, how you compensate people, how you promote people, how you do learning and development, how your benefits are, how your leaves are, leaves of absence policies are. Are you willing to look at all of that, okay, and assume none of them are sacred cows? That's humility. Courage is we're going to try some stuff, and undoubtedly we're going to make some mistakes and have failures. Do you have the courage to withstand that? And then discipline is follow up and follow through. Organization change isn't overnight, right? It's your giant ocean liner making a change. It's going to take time to make that move. So it really comes down to those three fundamental tenets of the core of SEC coaching. It's just done at a system level mm-hmm. in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as we as we pivot to talk a little bit more about the failures that happen along the way of building a coaching career, I'd love to ask you with vulnerability, and I'll volunteer to go first, of these three characteristics, courage, humility, and discipline, all three of them are important. All three of them need to be very high. You personally as an individual, which one of these three is your weak point? Have a think. I'm happy to go first. Happy to let you go first. I'd say discipline. Discipline. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Uh, I get excited about things. Mm -hmm. And I can draw my attention away. So when I look back on some of the things that I could have done better, it's usually because there there wasn't sufficient follow-up and follow-through. So to me, Mm -hmm. it's easy. If there's one of those three, okay, I, I mean, I think people that work with me have, would have no problem with humility. They know I'm a risk taker. Courage isn't a problem. But sometimes where I fall short is the follow up, follow through. That's mm-hmm. discipline. Yeah. I think I'm in the same boat as you, Jathan. We're, we're probably rowing in the same direction. <laughs> um, yeah. Discipline is, discipline is the tough one. And, you know, from a very non-scientific standpoint, my observational data, having worked with certified now 3,500 or so coaches out of the 4,500 in our network, discipline seems to be one of the common, um, common factors amongst coaches. I'd be, I'd be curious. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, courage, humility, and discipline. If you're a stakeholder center coach, you know what that means. Um, send us an email podcast at mgscc.net. Which of these three is your weak point between courage, humility, and discipline for Jathan and I, it's both discipline. Um, but on the flip so ladies and gentlemen, send us an email, tell us what you think. Um, Jathan, what about with your clients? Do you find any, any common themes amongst those three? Well, I find all three, all three. Yeah. All three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, yeah. Yeah. All three. Um, yeah. So I think, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about becoming a coach. We talk a lot about what it's like to be a coach. Um, I think that the under discussed elephant, um, is that there are no coaches that I have ever known, met, interviewed, or watched, listened to, or read about who started and reached a high level of success without some pretty spectacular failures along the way. Um, and because this is such an opaque industry, both between 
suppliers and buyers, but also amongst the suppliers. I'd love to take a minute and talk about, you know, what were your big failures or was, did you ever have a moment, especially when you were starting out that you banged your head against the wall and said, that's it. I've, I've either made the wrong decision or I need to abandon ship. You know, what were your biggest, uh, biggest failures and what did you learn from them along the way? Well, I mean, I think the one, the story I shared with you earlier certainly falls in the category of failure mm-hmm. and, and certainly caused, and even to this day, makes me wince. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, you know, I'm not saying that's the only example, mm-hmm. but certainly that I would consider that a failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, even though notwithstanding that years later, the CEO said, I was right. Mm-hmm. I still consider it a failure. There was a professional failure on my part. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, so, you know, and I've had, that's, that's actually where I've had to really watch myself is in that space. Like sometimes, you know, going back to humility, courage, and discipline, sometimes I'll get too courageous and, and, or maybe not so humble where I'll challenge somebody in a way that isn't productive. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes have to watch myself. And maybe it's because, you know, when you tried cases and you litigated cases, you know, you're not bashful, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're not afraid of a verbal scrap. And so sometimes I have to catch myself and say, no, no, Jathan, take a deep breath. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's zen our way through this. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I, I distinctly remember the first time I I made a pretty, um, let's say a pretty obvious blunder while I was sitting um, in the room doing a, having a conversation with Marshall. And I felt this warm hand on my forearm and he just started doing this. And I was like, what, what's going on? He's like, let it go, hmm. let yeah. it go. And as soon as yeah. I feel that hand, any time since then, I think, oh boy, I really messed something up here, didn't I? Just thank you, Marshall. Yeah, thank you. Just let it go. Um, well, my 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 experience, with Marshall, uh, corrective, Marshall, has to do with this thing about no button. However, tell so us. So I'm having this conversation, and he's interrupting me left and right. Oh, you just said no. What? No, did I? Oh, you just said it again. You know, it's like. But I didn't mean, you just said, but it's like, oh my God, I can't talk to this guy. You know, so, so those three words now are like, yeah. I, I, I run from them. Yeah. No, but, and however, you don't ever use those around Marshall. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause he takes no prisoners. <laughs> yes. And it feels so good the first time he does it. Um, no, I, I think none of us feel good when it happens, but I think. I think it's fair to say that anyone with sufficient uh, humility is going to walk away and say, boy, yeah, I, I should probably, probably mm-hmm. make some changes. Um, but on the topic of, of failures, you know, entrepreneurship is such a huge piece of being a coach. Again, it's another piece that I'm personally very passionate about in an area that I think is under discussed, uh, the under discussed side of being a coach. So when we think about failures and we think about um, you starting your coaching practice, as well as having your law firm. Um, did you make any any critical errors or fit, have any um, particular failures in the domain of entrepreneurship that you thought would be your ruins? 
Well, I think it, it, going back to when I started my own law firm, I think the way I managed the firm mm-hmm. was its potential ruin because I really was not a good manager. And I really uh, didn't know what I was doing and uh, brought a whole lot of, I think, pain and suffering into my organization that could have been avoided. I, I didn't have a coach and could desperately, in hindsight, have used a coach. Mm-hmm. So that's the one that jumps to mind for me is how I managed or mismanaged people in my organization. Mm-hmm which I think in a way informs my work to this day, 20 some odd years later. As we discuss the fears and the failures that get in the way of starting, um, and also that seem to be more and more pronounced the harder we work at this whole coaching career thing, I'm reminded of the wisdom from Dale Carnegie, who is quoted with, with uh, who is cited um, as the source of, of a quote, something to the effect of um, do, do that which you fear to do and keep on doing it because this is the, the quickest and surest way ever discovered to conquer a fear. Figure out what you don't want to do and then do that again and again. Uh, you, Jathan, have a demonstrable track record of doing the hard things first. Um, and I know you coach others to do the same thing, both in your one-on-one work as well as with your authorship. So tell me some of the ways that this hard-won wisdom has affected your clients. Well, uh, what I'd add another quote to the Dale Carnegie quote, which I use in, in, in my work, which is from the poet Robert Frost, the best way out is always through. And what mm. I've seen is in the workplace, what goes wrong is people don't follow that dictum or the Dale Carnegie dictum. Instead, they avoid that challenging conversation. They avoid that issue. They rationalize it'll go away by itself, or maybe some third party will fix it. And so what happens is the problem then festers. In fact, every case I ever litigated was a product of avoidance of there was an issue and instead of being addressed directly and proactively, it was ignored or dealt with passively aggressively and then it festered and then it turned toxic. So one of the lessons I use in my coaching work that goes all the way through my entire career, including my law work is is, you know, don't let it fester. Don't let the elephant in the room get any bigger. Don't try to carve a path around the elephant. Okay. It's just going to get worse. So just about every working day, I'm coaching somebody on an upcoming confront the elephant conversation. Today's no exception. Today's no exception. Oh, have you got a client working on that right now? Oh, yeah. I've got multiple clients working on them. I mean, it's just, I just, before this call, this interview, I just got off a coaching session that's just on that very, very topic. Mm. Uh, well, yeah. you know, you're you're quite well known um, in our circles uh, as someone who, <clears throat> someone who does a great job 
melding together multiple disciplines um, into surprisingly effective and repeatable processes that managers and senior leaders can use. Uh, and this uh, I've seen uh, be abundantly visible in your work with tools like um, your same day summaries, the no fear confrontation method, um, and the crossroads conversations, just to name a few. Um, and you recently talked about this in your most recent SHRM publication, the three tools to replace conventional employee discipline, um, for which we'll include a link down below for the audience. Um, can you briefly, you know, maybe talk about these tools for anyone who hasn't yet been been following you? Yes, the uh, in, in my humble opinion, you know, the HR profession has taken the wrong turn in certain ways. And one of them is to combat wrongful discharge lawsuits. This notion grew starting, I think, really more in the 80s into the 90s and so forth, that we have to create bulletproof documentation so that if we fire somebody or discipline somebody, we can't get sued. Or if we get sued, we won't lose. So it gave birth to this notion of progressive discipline which to me is an ultimate contradiction in terms. Progressive discipline is anything but progressive, okay? So it's basically with sort of, you, you, an employee does something you don't like as the boss, so you give them a verbal counsel. All right, another problem. Well, now we're gonna go into warning one or warning two or written warning or final warning or performance improvement plan or, and then we're gonna include all this wonderful legalistic language like, and further violations will result up to and including summary dismissal, okay? And all this garbage. And I, all I found in my car legal career was it was, you know, great for the legal profession mm. for a variety of reasons that we could go into, but I won't because it's a coaching call, not a legal call or an HR call. But, but anyway, so, so rather than just say this system sucks, which it does, in that article, I say, here's an alternative. How about do it this way instead? And that's what the three tools are about, is throw all that conventional performance, you know, all that conventional stuff out the window and then replace it with this. That's what the article's about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the, the sort of provocative uh, ending. It was almost like you crawled right inside my head when you said, um, you know, some of you might be skeptical about this. You might be thinking, will this work? Won't it work? You know, here's why it won't work or here's why it could. Um, but I love how you opened the door and said, fire away. Tell me what's on your mind. I'll address each and every one of your concerns in a follow-up uh, publication. Um, and that was published just, you know, we're sitting here January 10th. That was published near the end of December. So uh, maybe I should ask when, when is the next episode? Next week. Oh no! Kidding. Okay. Next week, I think the the the, the publishers said they're they're going to run my follow up column next mm -hmm. week because okay. I did hear from a whole bunch of folks throughout okay. the country, uh -huh. uh, all of them intrigued, and some enthusiastically intrigued, and some skeptically intrigued. All mm -hmm. intrigued. So I got you know well what about and what about. And ta da da da, and ta da da da. So, uh, so the follow up column I'm told will be published sometime next week. Okay. So um, I, just, I just submitted it actually. 
Well, just just for fun, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening at home, if you're watching at home or listening in the car, um, if if you have read the the article um, that Jathan's published in Sherm, um, write to us podcast at mgscc.net. Let us know if if you would like us to do a whole separate session on on um, those topics and those tools to change from progressionary discipline to. Um, this sort of new method, because I think, Jathan, it would be something that's valuable for leaders. It's exceptionally good advice for managers. Um, and why shouldn't every coach have this in their pocket as well? So um, was, well, anyway, we'll park that again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to hear more, let us know. Um, we'll use your responses as the litmus test for whether there is demand for this. Um, but I'll look out for that next week, Jathan. Thank you for for sharing it. Um, how do you combine these these wonderful tools with stakeholder centered coaching? I haven't. They they've just sort of seamlessly kind of fit. I, I guess I haven't really thought through it. I, I I'd like to take credit for some big genius insight, but they've just it's just kind of happened organically, mm -hmm. you know. And then I extract elements of it, elements of or what, for example coaching people on reframing feedback into feed forward. That's a classic goldsmithism. Okay. Seamless fit. The, what I call the three, three, one up to three strengths, up to three growth areas, which one to focus on first organically work it in mini survey concepts. Okay. Let's objectively measure change in perception. Has this person gotten better at X, you know, plus three, minus three. So it's more of an organic integration <laughs> than a, than a thoughtful plan. I'll confess. Yeah, that's it's just, it's yeah. not uncommon. Um, you know, in some of my conversations with other coaches, they have described stakeholder center coaching, almost like seed beds or garden raised, raised beds for your garden that, you know, you're going to have a very clean boxed in system that you can use and follow. But mm -hmm. as you, as you um, modify it for each individual use case, each leader, each stakeholder, um, new tools or ways of usage sort of sprout out from that. So I think what's so cool about the tools you've talked about here is they are effective standalone tools and they also work well integrated with stakeholder center coaching, but they don't have to be, um, they don't have to be separate. So, you know, I'm curious, Jathan, uh, having all of these integrated tools in your toolkit, um, I would imagine gives a nice boost to, to your confidence in pursuing prospective clients. Um, how has it affected you to have both stakeholder center coaching and a law background and HR, OD, L&D experience? How has this affected your coaching practice? It's been fantastic. <laughs> in a word. <laughs> In a word. Sure. Do you, do you feel, you know, uh, something we commonly hear from coaches, whether they're new or veterans, is that it's just difficult to start the conversation or to go in with confidence. Um, part of that has to do with just how wildly differentiated each coach is such that the buyers don't actually know the difference in offerings. Um, but yours are well articulated. 
they're well published um, and well respected, does that make it? Do you let's say do you struggle or do you have any apprehension when you're speaking with a new client, or does it sort of just feel like, hey, here's what I do. If you like it, great. If not, no problem. Well, I've moved to a place that's that's a nice place to be. I haven't always been in that place, and so. Like what I tell younger coaches or, or people starting out or relatively newbies in this, this business is if it, if it all works out, you know, you're going to be a 10 year, 12 year overnight success. It's a good That's way to put it's it. Gonna work. May, you know, if you're lucky, maybe it'll be a six year and you're an overnight success. Mm-hmm. Okay. But just understand that's, that's how it's going to work. Yeah. So that, you're just going to have to keep chipping away until you're an overnight success. Yep. That's the, the part of discipline that many coaches, you know, yeah, that's, it's the I hard thing we don't want to accept. Yeah. You know, um, and they like the overnight success part and yeah. there's truth to it. There really is truth to it. Uh, it's just that overnight success is going to be preceded by a lot of time and a lot of effort. Um, I remember a conversation, um, I was having with Marshall in his, his study, um, of his, his home in Rancho Santa Fe some years back. And I remember a group of, of people who were coaches, consultants, psychologists, they came into the room and, um, quite unabashedly said, Marshall, we want to do exactly what you do just like you do it. We want to mm-hmm. you know, fly around and coach high level leaders. And we want to do all of these, these things and, you know, rub shoulders with the who's who. And Marshall very thoughtfully stopped. And this was before his beard, but he stopped and touched his chin and he yeah. said, okay, so what do you want me to do? They said, how do you do it? Tell us your secret. And he stopped and said, well, I would start with writing 40 books, have them translated into 35 languages, get 10 million miles on your frequent flyer card and, um, you know, then come back and I'll give you step two. And they didn't love that answer, but again, right. it's, it's the discipline. It's, it's, you're going to be well, an overnight yeah. success. Maybe it's like me saying, you know, it'll be a 20 year overnight success, you know, that, but that, that's, that's always my opening line, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe you can be 20 years, but that's essentially uh, how it's going to be. So remind me, Jathan, how many, how many years have you been in, in formalized coaching? Well, in formalized coaching, you know, maybe a dozen years. Okay. 10, 12 years, somewhere in there. And in that, uh, in that time frame, you know, what were some of the, what were some of the big highlights, the big highlights that stay with you? It may have been a particular client or it may have just been a, a, a moment of learning for someone. What stuck with you? Well, one highlight that continues is when I coach an executive and not only is it successful in the workplace, but they share with me how it has translated in their home, in their community, family, that the things that we worked on for them to be better in the workplace have crossed over into these other environments that continues to be a source of motivation for me. Oh yeah. Do you have any stories that you could share with us? Wow. Uh, sure. Uh, boy, um, two sisters that hadn't talked to each other for years, uh, using the 
no fear confrontation technique. Uh, Father, Son, Midas Touch Apology, reset button in their relationship. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, spouses, family members, uh, church position, person has a church job, uh, how it's changed in his church position, uh, professional speaker, changed how he addresses audiences. Mm. It wasn't part of the mm -hmm. gig, you know, but it, it and how it's, uh, people tell me it's helped him better at sales, mm. even though that wasn't part of the gig. I mean, this, you know, it's hard to sort of identify this one yeah. or that one, uh, because it's just such an ongoing thing oh, yeah. that I expect that if we're successful in the workplace, there'll be collateral benefits. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much always the case. It is. And you know, that's, that's the beauty of stakeholder center coaching, right? It's, we're not going to pick how you uh, just engage with one direct report and work on that. We're not going to take each individual case and say, how do you untangle this knot? Mm -hmm. We're going to say, let's, let's create a system that can pick any one growth area and get better at it measurably from the eyes of everyone else who's affected by that behavior. Um, and so if we are successful to any degree, it should affect your home life. It should affect how you engage with your community, with your, your friends. Um, but of course it's going to impact what you do, um, in your job. So, um, you know, that's something that's very clearly at the top of mind for someone like you, for someone like me. Um, and I'd love to talk, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you, um, so our coaching methodology, and if you're, if you're a certified coach here, you know, this, that what we do is very systematic. Um, it means that you can expect roughly equivalent results, regardless of which coach you work with. Um, and so we encourage coaches to develop their own subject matter expertise and differentiate themselves by that added value that they bring, um, to an engagement. So Jathan, um, I'd love to know from your side, you know, you've spent all of this time niching into your own um, subject matter expertise as a coach. Uh, <clears throat> describe that niche to us. And maybe you can, maybe the question is, why do clients choose Jathan Janov over the slew of other coaches that they could be working with? Hmm. Well, let's see. Um, there's a few, uh, a couple that immediately go to mind. And one was triggered by something you said that about the system approach, I do both. I, I get, I parachute into toxic relationships to help them hit the reset button. So that's another thing is kind of workplace toxicity or relationship toxicity. So I will do specific interventions in addition to the, the overall methodology. So that's one area somewhat related is I think I've developed a kind of reputation as well, I don't know if it's, this is what I would call it, but like the jerk whisperer. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I seem to, to do especially well with high level, highly charged people that are perceived as intimidating and abrasive and so forth. And I have a pretty strong track record of working with those folks and helping them hit the reset button. 
still maintaining that high charge, high expectation, high results drive, but doing it more effectively. Mm -hmm. So that's another area that, that I, I get, you know, and there's some folks that they know, like, this is really difficult. You know, I've been brought in as the coach of the last resort after other coaches, mm. you know, the change didn't happen. Mm. Um, and so that's another area. And then I mentioned earlier the system stuff and the HR stuff. So, you know, those areas are the areas that tend to produce work for me. Mm -hmm. And when you're brought in, you know, you mentioned being brought in as that last, that last resort coach, what goes through your mind, you know, your first day on campus when you're thinking, okay, I'm third in line, the first two, first two batters have struck out. This really relies on me. What's going through your mind at that moment? What's going through my mind is this is fun. <laughs> yeah. I really, be truth be mm -hmm. told. And sometimes, you know, and very often I'm not popular initially because they've been forced to right mm -hmm. either that or lose their job right and so and they've got this wonderful you know six-figure package and whatnot and they don't want to lose it and you know they've eaten up the other coaches and now they got mm -hmm. me and i just find that fun and in fact i even find it fun when they try to intimidate me i just find it amusing and then they kind of get the idea it's probably not going to work so then it's like well where do we go from mm -hmm. here so I actually enjoy it. I mean, I talked to one of our, another master coach in stakeholder-centered coaching, and she said she will not take those engagements. And I said, I like those engagements. I want those engagements. Plus the upside. Hmm? Plus the upside. Yeah, go ahead. You know, the upside, the potential upsides. Because again, not just in the workplace, but everywhere, home, community. I mean, one was, uh, uh, what, what, one, one kudo I got, okay. This type A MD, high, high compensation, high this, high that, ambitious drive, you know, uh, he's a hammer, you're a nail kind of guy, right? And uh, so, so he called me and he said, you know, I have to thank you for not being thrown in jail. And I said, oh, tell me more. So he said, well, he was up, he was on his way with his older kids to up to a ski resort. There was some kind of accident on the, kind of the winding mountain road and traffic was blocked and he's very impatient guy, you know, and he's in his fancy schmancy Mercedes and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, uh, police are there with some kind of accident in there. They're motioning people to stop and stay. And he starts getting frustrated. And he said, the hell with this. So he kind of pulls into the, the emergency lane, which was being kept clear for emergency vehicles and starts to try to see if he can inch past this. Okay. And, you know, cop comes over. I'm going to throw your ass. In I mean, he's just like, this cop is just white hot. How dare you? Okay. And, and, and so he's the, the MD said, you know, the old me would have just gone right back at him. And I, I'm sure I just would have been thrown in jail because, you know, I had effed him and this, that, and the other, and, and I'm busy and I'm a doctor and I've got this and that and the other and blah, blah, blah. And so he said, he said, instead I did the verbal Aikido technique. 
And, uh, and he said, what was really cool was then the cops say, tell you what, you know, get out of the lat lane, pull into the other lane, follow me. <laughs> so the cop gets into his car, his cop, yeah, the squad car, and he leads him through the whole mess to clearance. And he said, so he's able to move past all of this completely stopped traffic wow. on this mountain road toward the ski resort. And he's now free and clear and off to go skiing. Wow. So he said, he said it in that moment, you know, when this cop is what, you know, da, 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 how dare you pull into the, you know, da, 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 da. And, 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 uh, and he said, and I know I'm just about to go right back at him. I'm a doctor. I'm this, I'm that and the other. And he said, I just went into a keto. And then the next thing you know, I, I get a lift out of the mess. That's amazing. So those are, you know, it's just fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, he would fall into that kind of high maintenance, you know, J-E-R-K category. Mm -hmm. Um, for those who, who don't know verbal Aikido, I mean, I, I'm a huge proponent myself. Can you give a brief primer on what it is? Yeah. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe put one of the articles in the yep. chat or something. Um, or if you need a link, I can send you a link if you don't have one handy. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, essentially, um, it's a martial art. It's based on the physical martial art of Aikido, which in a, in a nutshell is based on the idea of self-defense, but where no one gets hurt. So by contrast, years ago, I trained in karate. Karate was defensive. However, if you're attacked, you could permissibly injure or kill your attacker. You know, the basic building block was block strike. Attack comes, you block the attack, you strike the attacker. Aikido is based on a principle of instead of block an attack or strike, you engage, you take the attacker's energy, you move with them, you turn with them, you preserve your balance while they're struggling to gather their balance. You preserve your energy while they're expending their energy. The whole point is so you can move them into a position where they can't hurt you and you don't have to hurt them. That's Aikido. And you can take that same concept and apply it to verbal attacks. Mm -hmm. What does that look like in practice? So when the cop says, to, when the cop says to the doctor, "What the f is the matter with you? How dare you pull into the haba huba haba ha?" Waving his finger, that's a verbal attack. How do you engage? You can go fight. Well, you just stupid ass cop. Blah. You can go flight. You know, put the car in reverse and jam your way down there. That's not a good idea. Or you can just freeze and go hubba 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 hubba. Or you can engage. Well, let's take a look at it. My bad. What's, uh, you know, having a rough day, officer. You know, sounds like I've just made your day a little rougher. What's up? You know? Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. That's, that's Aikido. That's verbal Aikido. Um, you know, Jathan, the day that I read that article and we talked about, you know, how to actually do this in practice, uh, <clears throat> I was driving home later that day. Uh, I had my car on, on autopilot, so it's, it's driving and I guess I was following someone closely 
again, it's a computer driven, so I, I, I won't take responsibility for that. But I did take responsibility when the guy um, got out of his car at a stoplight and came up and said, what, what's, what's your problem? And he's in this very shiny sports car, bright yellow, convertible, top down. He's got a couple girls with him. The guy is clearly looking for a fight. And he came up, hits my window. What's your problem? And I said, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, I said, man, that car is just so yellow. I wanted to see it up close. Was I, was I, did I do something wrong? And then he started talking about his car. I thought, wow, what an incredible, uh, conversational technique mm -hmm. to use as a manager when things go south to have that mm -hmm. in your pocket pull it out and avoid the conflict altogether yeah. um perfect. yeah perfect perfect example because now his brain is all scrambled mm -hmm. you know huh? the last thing in the world he expected was to go wow that color yellow <laughs> you know and, and so his brain is going he's trying to process and that's what i mean that's like he's now we're away hey, which way is up yeah. and and then it's like, you know, I don't really want to fight this guy. I think I'll just relax. And it all just worked out somehow. But, you know, I, I have to, to thank you because I'm yeah. also able to do that with, with my, my kids who obviously have their own, uh, mm -hmm. their own set of conflicts coming up. Yes. Um, good. And then uh, if, you, if you would entertain, you know, a two-minute description of the, the uh, no fear confrontation method, because I think this is also something very powerful for people to have. Sure. It's, it's, well, it, it begins with the ear, which is everybody I work with is going to hear about the ear, which is an active listening tool. It's a sequence, explore, acknowledge, respond, E-A-R. Okay. The, we're hardwired to just do our, our position, our thoughts, our, our sentences disproportionately end in periods, not question marks. So explore means you, you genuinely try to find out what the other person thinks, how they feel, open-ended questions. E is where you have them acknowledge that you understand them. Key point. You understand them, not the other way around. You know, let me see if I understand you. Is this why you're upset? Person says, yes, you've done the acknowledge. Now you can respond. It's a sequence. Person says, no, you go back to the E. Sorry, what did I miss? So, so, so the fundamental listening building block is ear, E-A-R. Now, no fear confrontation is where you know you've got to initiate a tough conversation or you're in the midst of something that all of a sudden turns tough. So I call it the no fear confrontation. And you simply add one element to the mix, and that's the F which is frame. So what you do is you begin by framing the conversation, which is a direct to the point, no beating around the bush, succinct statement of the problem or issue. And then you immediately pivot into the ear. Mm. You know, uh, Jim, there's a, there's a problem with your attendance that we need to discuss. Or Sarah, Based on these issues we're having, I'm not sure you can continue here. Okay. You're not being, you're right to it, but then you pivot into the ear. What do you think? What are your thoughts? How do you see it? Super open-ended. And then you, and then you let the active listening guide you. That's the no fear confrontation. 
Yeah. And again, ladies and gentlemen, there will be a link in the show notes. Um, definitely encourage you to check this out. These are great tools that stand all on their own. Um, you can use them as a, as a coach. You can use them as a manager. Um, and you can even use them as I do, as a parent, as a family person, um, anywhere that you want. So, um, Jathan, you know, it, it's, it's been great to hear the ups and downs um, of your coaching career. Um, and to know that through hard work and intense focus, that, that discipline um, that we talked about, the courage, humility, and discipline trifecta, um, as we can call it, um, that's allowed you to build this coaching life that you're, you're quite proud of. And, you know, if I'm the audience member, I'm thinking, okay, well, boy, he sure started out as an attorney. And, and it seems like, you know, he maybe had a bit of a leg up. How on earth am I going to do that? So if, ladies and gentlemen, if you're watching this at home or listening on your daily commute, you might have the same question. So uh, Jathan, let's take a moment to recognize uh, that question from our listeners um, and address the burning question, perhaps with some kind of prescriptive advice um, so that we can all uh, you know, have a chance to follow in your steps and improve our own career stories. So um, I'd like to ask your advice, Jathan. Um, what advice would you give to someone who uh, was similar to yourself, they're in a career, they're doing well, but they're starting to get pulled towards coaching, they're starting to build their interest in leadership, uh, but they're not sure what to do yet. What advice would you have for that person? Well, I mean, if you're not already certified, okay, I'd recommend you get certified and I'd recommend you sign up to participate in our pro bono paying it forward program where you'll get matched up with a leader in a nonprofit, you know, people who can't afford corporate coaching rates, and you'll have a coaching engagement through it. And a, a more senior coach will be available as a resource for you. So it's also a great way to, to help with the learning curve that still exists even after you're certified or have gone through the basic instruction. That would, that's my, that's the advice I give others. Um, and if you're, if you're already certified, if you're already certified, I say, well, why don't you you know, uh, participate in our pro bono program. How, how does someone go about doing yeah. that? Who can they reach out to or where can they go to? Well, they can, they can reach out to me. Uh, another certified coach, Aaron Wheeler, is, you know, kind of helps coordinate it as well. But if they want to reach out to me, I can then forward it. And uh, um, also it's something where you can also reach out to, if you, if you support a nonprofit, and you want to coach a leader in that nonprofit, you can approach them with it and say that, you know, you'll use the system and, and you'll get support in doing so. So we can help find that person for you or you can find the person and uh, and then we'll we'll give you support. And it's a pure and it counts toward your, uh, you know, if you want to become advanced or you want to become master. Those engagements count the same as, as standard corporate engagements. Or six months is typically with a six-month engagement. Um, and what's your address? What address can people write to you at? Uh, you know, Jathan at stakeholdercenteredcoaching.com. Mm -hmm. That's probably the Perfect. And we'll put a link to that down below. Um, good. So get certified. Join the pro bono program to get your reps in or build your mileage log or just essentially get practice, 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 so that way you can improve. That would be the advice. Yes. And sometimes those, those pro bono ones turn into paying ones. You know, so that's the other thing is, is 
Um, but yeah, that's what I would say is, you, you know, get certified, but don't assume certification means mastery. Yes. So you need, and you know, plus, frankly, my recommendation is, you know, if you get some pro bono gigs under your belt, you know, before somebody's paying you a bunch of money. Okay. I mean, if you can, if you can afford it, better to go that route than potentially jump in before you're really prime time and, and mess up a long-term income source. Oh yeah. Um, so that's the other reason I think that the pro bono program can benefit our coaches in addition, of course, to benefiting these, these great organizations. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful program that you've put together and I definitely encourage um, everyone to certainly check it out. Email Jathan, J-A-T-H-A-N at stakeholdercenteredcoaching.com. Um, it's, it's a great program. It will help you get your reps. And I just, I, I say this almost weekly and I don't think I'll say it until, I don't think I'll stop saying it until the day I'm dead. Um, but one of the best things you can do for selling coaching is to go in with a track record of clients you've worked with and results they've gotten from working with you. And one of the best things you can do to serve your paying clients is to not let them be your first engagement. Go out and make the mistakes somewhere else first. You know, friend, family member, a, a, an old an old college buddy, coach someone to go through the motions to get the muscle memory so that way when you're sitting in front of the client, you're not thinking about, oh, what do I need to do next? And how do I how do I do things well here? You're just on autopilot with your muscle memory and you're present for the client. Yeah. So um, agree a hundred percent. And that brings to that brings me to the next question. Um, you know, you talked about some, in, some engagements where you are the last line of defense from coaching. If I'm a client and I have spent hundreds of thousands or millions on coaching, but I'm not really happy with the results. What advice do you have for these leaders? Well, it's going to vary. I mean, but it's, it's, you know, you want to find out why. You know, I mean, it's, there's a, there's a number of possible causes. If coaching isn't working, uh, one is the coaches. I, I mean, I had an experience where I referred, I mean, I sometimes refer coaches, you know, for clients because I also have different roles. So I'm not necessarily going to coach certain people, or if I'm coaching the CEO, I'm not going to coach the VP of manufacturing too. So I've, I've placed coaches. So, and I've had experiences where I place people and they did a fantastic job. And I've had experiences where, including certified coaches, where they, they blew it. And it was on them from what I could piece together. I've also had situations where it didn't work out and it wasn't because of the coach, but it was because of the coachee. And in other cases where it wasn't necessarily the coachee per se or the coach, but the sponsor which is in, in our terminology is usually the senior boss or whoever engages you, the board of directors or the CEO or whomever. And so I always want to look at root, you know, do a root cause analysis. So I'd be saying to that leader, well, well tell me more. Okay. So you made this investment in coaching and, and I've heard this. I mean, I've been in this space where I, you know, as well, we spent all this money on all these coaches and we haven't seen the results. All right, well, tell me more. But usually what I can find is coachee, coach, system, senior or top leadership system. Somewhere in that mix are the answers. 
And so if you're serious about wanting to make change, you got to be open to that. Um, because, you know, if you're, if you're willing, if you're in that leadership position, senior leadership, you know, we, we can produce results. Now there are times where the result is that that person moves on. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, but, you know, and in fact, one way to really screw things up is to say, even though the coaching failed because the coach, is just not willing or able, well, well now we'll look the other way. That's toxic. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's just basically feeding the virus. So there's a bunch of different things that go into it. But my, my point is, if you're the CEO or you're the board of an organization and you want a coaching culture or you want a healthy culture and you're serious, you'll get it. If you're serious, you'll get it. And I've known that from, you know, studying people as a journalist, people like Alan Mulally at Ford, Doug Conant at Campbell Soup Company, people that have come in as changed CEOs. And if they're willing to, you know, if you persevere, you'll get there. Uh, so there's, I've never encountered a situation where, where there couldn't have been success. Mm. doesn't mean the success happens, but I've never encountered one where I said, we're stuck. Mm. We're stuck. So that's, that's my approach and philosophy when, when involved in that kind of a situation. Um, as part of our methodology, we have a, a list of do's and don'ts for leaders. It, when when you think about coaches, if we were to create that same do's and don'ts for coaches to prescribe to them to build a fruitful, long-lasting, sustainable career that they enjoy um, and find meaning in, what is one or two things that you would put on that do's and don't list? You mean aside from what I just said about getting certified and joining the pro bono mm -hmm. program? Yeah. Um, well, one, I think I mentioned earlier is, you know, your chances are you're going to be a long-term overnight success. <laughs> Accept that. Okay. And don't give up. Don't give up. Keep chipping away. Keep chipping away. And, and then overnight you'll have that success. I mean, that to <laughs> me is probably right up there, you know, top advice. Absolutely. Well, Jathan, we're nearing the top of our time together. Um, for those of you at home, I want to invite you to join the conversation here and the conversations we'll have in the subsequent weeks. So if there's a question you'd like to ask or a coach you'd like to hear interviewed, drop us a line at podcast at mgscc.net. And if you're interested in learning more about our methodology, go to mgscc.net forward slash sample course, all one word sample course, to get instant access to the course Foundations of Stakeholder Center Coaching, where you can learn the founding principles of our coaching methodology at no cost to you. And by the way, this includes exactly what we were talking about, courage, humility, and discipline as a founding principle of our methodology and as a, uh, a requirement for the success Jathan's talking about where if you're, if you are committed to doing this, you're going to get there one way or another. So, um, Jathan, it's been wonderful to have you before we say goodbye to our listeners. Can you, uh, can you tell us how we can follow your story or get in touch with you? Um, where can we go to follow you? Well, one of the things, uh, I do periodically, usually about once a month is I collate various articles that relate to coaching and organization development. And I, I send them out to a group. So if people want to get on that list, you could email me and I'll just, I'll add you to that list. 
So, so like for instance, the uh, the next issue that comes out is going to have the uh, three tools to replace progressive discipline and the follow up Q and A column. So that's one way to stay connected with me is to get that periodic e letter that contains content. I also write a blog for stakeholders and coaching on the website called the Coach's Corner, and you can certainly go there. Uh, and also sometimes I'll include those in that, in that monthly e-letter that I send out. That's, you know, probably the easiest way to stay connected. I'm on LinkedIn. You can connect with me there too, of course. Uh, so those would be the things that come to mind. Thank you, Jason. We will put your LinkedIn address at the bottom of the show notes so people can get in touch with you. So ladies and gentlemen, this is my guest, Jathan Janov. You can find him on LinkedIn. You can email him, Jathan at stakeholdercentercoaching.com. And this show was produced by Stakeholder Center Coaching, where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Join us next week for another episode of Conversations with Coaches.